U.S. corporate profits hit a record high in the fourth quarter of 2021, even as GDP lowered. So what does this mean exactly? Well, it means inflation is good for big businesses, which upped their prices in response to supply and labor shortages and saw profit margins increase 25% to $2.94 trillion, the largest gain since 1976. And while we know gas prices are taking a toll on working people, 25 of the world's biggest fossil fuel corporations are reaping in record profits as well. Oil giant BP, for example, has hit its highest profits in eight years. The USDA predicted the cost of gas will continue to rise this year and food as well. You could expect to spend another 4% on groceries by the end of this year, including meat, poultry, dairy, vegetables, and more. But despite this news, MSNBC is still confused as to why Americans are dissatisfied with this booming economy, in quotes. Journalist, journalist David Sirota responded by saying it's almost as if the booming economy is great for billionaires but doesn't satisfy millions of people being crushed by Democrats' corporate donors who are fleecing the non-rich with ever higher prices for health care, housing, energy, and other necessities. I wonder how David feels about this. He yeah. never makes it clear. Leave me some vagueness there. But so 25% increase in profits. So, and we've talked about this a bunch on the show. These corporations were using the, 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 the slight inflation that we did see in, in the beginning as an excuse to then jack up prices. So if, now if you combine the, uh, you know, the supply chain problems with the, with the energy price increases with the corporate greed, you've basically explained all of the inflation that we've experienced without having to then say, oh, well, the problem was actually the deficit or the problem was government spending or whatever it is. No, we, we, we found uh, the culprit. Uh, that's my take anyway. What do you guys think? Well, yeah. A little bit of government spending probably in there too. A lot, of, a lot of government spending. There was a lot of government spending. I mean, look, I mean, even, uh, I mean, big companies are just raking in the profits off of human suffering. That's what we've seen during this pandemic with even just the vaccines. You know, all these vaccine makers, Big Pharma just raked in a ton of money. Why did that not go back to the American people? It was an emergency. It was like kind of like wartime, right? I mean, that money should have gone back into the economy. They should not have been allowed to make so much money off, off of that. And now we're seeing oil companies doing the same thing and, and other companies just saying, well, now's the time to rake in the profits off of human suffering. I mean, it's disgusting. There should be some controls on this. This is, it's going to, and it's not going to be good for them in the end. Because when you bankrupt everybody, when everyone in the middle class is poor and they're not able to buy things, it ultimately reels us down a path that doesn't look so great. It looks a lot like Venezuela. So I don't think this is being thought out that well. And maybe the government should step in. I don't know what Robbie thinks of this, but I think the government should be stepping in and capping these, this, the amount of profits. Are good. I think Bernie Sanders even had this plan. I'm a big fan of it. Go in there, cap their, cap their profits and put the rest back in the economy. It has to go back in. Well, meanwhile, BlackRock President Rob Captio has a different take on inflation. All you entitled people need to be taught a lesson. During a conference in Texas, Capito said, quote, for the first time this generation is going to go into a store, not be able to get what they want, and we have a very entitled generation that has never had to sacrifice. He went on to say, I would put on your seatbelts because this is something that we haven't seen. I think this generation has sacrificed. Wow. I think there's been plenty of of sacrificing. I mean, people who I, I graduated right around the time. Um, okay, look, we, yes, didn't have to serve in wars and all that kind of stuff. Sure, you know, thank you to our to our elder generations. Didn't have to, but a lot of people did. Some people know. did. Uh, but yeah, if you graduated, you know, after two thousand eight, and just saw the you know the job opportunities, the the housing opportunities, just crater. And then you have this debt that, again, I'm not for real. I, I, I don't think we should forgive student loan debts broadly. I think we should fix the system so that people don't take on that or even aren't able to take on that debt. But they were sold this fantasy that it was all worth it by con artists that, yeah, go into as, as much debt as you want and take as long as you want to get your education because then you're going to have this good job on the other end of it that was just a lie. It was a scam and a con. And and so, so don't don't yeah, don't say people, young people haven't sacrificed or haven't experienced loss or, or hardship. And then we've all I'm, experienced loss and hardship over the last two years. Everyone, everyone on planet right, Earth, right. it's been miserable. Right. I mean, look, the pitchforks are coming, guys. So either they do something about this or the pitchforks are coming. People are if they can't go to the grocery store and buy what they need, if they're seeing like with this BlackRock 
executive is saying. I mean, if, if we walk into the stores and the shelves are empty and we're not in a pandemic anymore and are, we can't commute where we need to commute because gas prices are too high, this is going to change fundamentally the way the people view the government. And it's not going to be good. And that is why I say the Bernie, Bernie, he came out. I just found it. He wants to hit large corporations with a 95% windfall tax. So if they ended up getting, you take the last five years, and if their profits have been enormous and compared to compared to their last five year average, then you hit them with a 95% windfall tax. And then of course that money should be given right back into the economy. I, I mean, otherwise, I think the pitchforks are coming. And that yeah. was actually first said by an Amazon executive years ago. And what I love about that kind of a 95% tax rate, and Robbie will appreciate this, I'm sure, is that it's not about collecting the revenue. It's about encouraging better corporate behavior. And so back when you had the 90% tax rates during the Eisenhower era, it wasn't as if those 90% rates were bringing in a whole bunch of money. But what it did is it, it said to oligarchs, you can't really become an oligarch. And so, okay, yes, you could come up with some scheme with your buddies, get in some private equity. You could buy up Sears. You could bankrupt it. You could steal all the people's pensions. And then you could, like, rent out, uh, you know, the carcass of, of the Sears while, while destroying, like, the legacy of this American company. You could do that, but you're not going to make much money off of it because we're going to tax 90% of it. And so a lot of these schemes that capital would have cooked up otherwise were like, you know what, we're not actually going to do that. And so as you saw the, that tax rate come down to 60, 50, 40, then down to the 30s, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we could, we could leverage Sears, buy it up, bankrupt it, steal the pension, and keep the money. Hmm, let's do that. And so these private equity firms, they go out and do that. And so if you bring back that windfall profit tax, you'd have companies during the pandemic who are seeing a little bit of inflation saying, you know what, we can actually double our prices right now. But then somebody's like, well, yeah, we could double our prices, but then we double our tax bill. So let's just leave our yeah. prices what they are because we're making a decent profit. And that's right. how you organize a better society, I think. Otherwise, we're going to see what we saw in the summer of 2020 happening on mm -hmm. a more regular basis. Boarded up stores, people looting, uh, I mean, just mayhem. And that is what happens when people get desperate. So, I, I mean, I think people need to wake up to this because I, I, you know, if what they're predicting is accurate, it's coming. People will not tolerate not being able to go to the store and get food. Right. And, and some of their responses will will be, uh, you know, far worse than what I'm talking about. Like, Robbie, we're trying to save your free market. We're trying to save. We're going <laughs> yes. to save well, I, the, way that FDR, the way that FDR, market, saved, yeah. FDR saved capitalism for you mm, guys. Did he? Yes. Did he? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, we'll, well, and we get no thanks. Thank you. Th I'm so I'm so grateful for you. I know how much you care about the free market. So, you know, we got to got to save going. it from itself. Well, you have to regulate it. It's like a good sports game. You know, you just can't let somebody run totally right. amok on the field. Right. There's got to be some regulation to this. You've got to. So, I mean, that's what free market capitalism needs to have those regulation controls on it somehow in order to keep the game fair. That's it, Robbie. That's all it is. It's, well, and we're getting into <laughs> philosophical territory. Fine, it needs to have some regulation. But uh, who's setting the regulation? Are they people who are captured by one of the teams or not? Are they? What are the interests of the bureaucrats who eventually determine whether they're following the rules? How accountable are they? Very little. You know, we get then. We then eventually it's like, oh, it takes like ten years to get a license to braid hair to be to be a hair braider because there's a regulation that was written by the Hair Braiders Association that doesn't want any competition. <laughs> anyway, that, those are all my. Practical, philosophical. Yeah, while, the, while the fight's going on, the crowd is going to pour onto the field and just beat all the players oh. to death if we don't do something. Yeah, yeah. That shouldn't happen in sports, I think. I'm not a, not a big sports guy, but. Doesn't happen much. You have much. no regulation. U.S. men's right. team made the World Cup if you want some sports update on the hey, show. Hey, how about that? Yeah. And uh, obviously, world <laughs> champion golfer Donald Trump out there somewhere, hitting holes in one. Holes in one all over the place. <laughs> we'll have more rising right after this. Tesla's chief executive officer and billionaire Elon Musk is giving, quote, serious thought to building a new social media platform, which he announced in a post last weekend. According to Reuters, Musk was responding to a Twitter user's question on whether he would consider building a social media platform with an open source algorithm and one that would prioritize free speech and where propaganda was minimal. 
Musk has been critical of Twitter and its recent policies. His announcement comes a day after he put out a Twitter poll asking users if they believed Twitter adheres to the principle of free speech. Over 70% voted no. I'm surprised that there's 30% that thought yeah. that uh, tw right. <laughs> Twitter does adhere. Tw Twitter's better than the rest, though, right? I mean, um, it's, a, it's a sliding um, scale. I don't know if Twitter's better or worse than Facebook. Yeah. It's kind of debatable. I, there are things right. I like about Twitter better. I like their sort of bird watch fact checking thing is better than Facebook's third party fact checkers, which are atrocious. Twitter, Twitter lets you, and it doesn't block the whole article. They let you like put a comment on that, and then you can comment on that comment. And it's a better program than Facebook's like just utterly awful um, fact checking. But I, I don't know. I guess I don't know which is worse. Overall, D Dorsey was kind of committed to free speech in some ways, or he was the so most. So Zuckerberg. So so Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg's still you know still there. Right. Um, I mean, they both were, at, but they both right. have. I think both platforms censor. They just censor slightly different content. Same thing with right. YouTube. So it's really challenging navigating all of these big tech platforms for you know a, a yeah. show like Rising, for example, because if we're posting clips on Twitter and on YouTube and on Facebook, you have to kind of know. Okay, right. each platform has its own rules and regulations, and they're not all the same. And so what is it going to be? But, you know, it's interesting to think about a platform that would prioritize free speech. I'm not really sure what that would look like. My guess, if Elon built it, I, I, I don't know if it would be one of those things where it's like, a, you know, where he's, he goes full throttle with it and says, okay, let's do this like Twitter um uh, you know, alternative, or if it would just be something it kind of builds. Couldn't you just says, buy well, Twitter and then change its policies? That would be the, but why start over? Buy Twitter and just fix it up a little bit. Uh, there the, you the, go. And, the richest man in the world, why not? Yeah, and, and the whole having it be free speech, you know, so, okay, so it, it's a private organization, so it doesn't have to follow the First Amendment. None of these, you know, platforms do. And I don't think, and even when people say they, they just want it to be a free speech platform, Usually what they they still want some level of moderation right. like we don't just want it to be you know porn and death threats and harass. Although there's porn on Twitter. There is porn on Twitter. It's a very Total notable porn on Twitter. It's right. the most discordant social media policy there is. Porn allowed on Twitter not on any of the other platforms. But uh, but all this you know some amount of harassment and, and and policing of that kind of stuff pretty much everybody at the end of the day is going to think is appropriate. The question is, where do you draw the line? And you know, different people would draw it differently. But no, no any platform that sets out to say, no, we're never going to draw that line. There's no line. It's not going to be a good platform. Yeah. That said, it could definitely be more allowing of open, you know, discussion and debate of legitimate issues like the things we talk about on the show or try to talk about to the extent YouTube lets us. Uh, that could certainly be a, a better and an improved no norm yeah. on a platform like Twitter. For me, the line is the law. So if something is breaking the law, well, then that would be where well, the I line is. But I, I think the, the, the law is a line, but there would be more like, like technically, it's, I don't think it's illegal to, you know, to, 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 to say where someone lives or what their phone number is, right? That you, you can't go to jail for sharing that information. On Twitter, I think if you post someone's phone number or, or, or address, physical address, I, I think they should take it down. I, I would support a social media policy against that kind of behavior, even though that behavior is fine under the First Amendment, right? Is it really? You're not, a, yeah. it, that's, it's totally legal to dox somebody mm -hmm. yeah. everywhere? Absolutely. Huh. Yeah. They'd have to shut I guess down I, Nexus. Well, now that I think about it, I guess they do it all the time. Like here in LA, you could do a tour of the Hollywood homes, right? <laughs> Go yeah. see the celebrities' homes. We'll drive you by them. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah, I guess there, that's, there are some things that should be different on social media that, right, not complete First Amendment, I think. Just my opinion. That kind but of stuff maybe, I think they should prohibit. Right, but, but maybe those could be genuine community guidelines. Like, for example, if they collectively put it out there and asked the people, would you be okay with doxing? Should we allow that on a platform? And people would overwhelmingly say no. Then they'd say, okay, that's part of the community guidelines. One of the issues with these big tech platforms is they're not even really asking the community what the community wants or doesn't want, right? They're just telling us these are our right. community guidelines, whether you like them or not. But maybe if something was more inclusive, right, and said, as a community, what do we Maybe, as a but people? The, the, for all we know, the, the community on Twitter in particular might be totally for 
absolute censorship of dissenting <laughs> views, right? That's, I, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right. Yeah, be careful. Not on, on Facebook. No, on Facebook, I think the community would be very, very allowing of the kind of right wing speech that often gets shut down. Um, and I don't, I don't know about YouTube, but on, on, on Twitter, I think Twitter liberals pretty decisively outnumber conservatives. I would expect. Yeah, well, if there was a vote to be had, then maybe more conservatives would show up and say, I'm going to cast my vote. <laughs> we're not <laughs> that excited about guideline. elections in this country yeah. in general. Yeah. Maybe if it were about social media, Ryan, you just got to get them excited <laughs> about the right thing. Well, that right? is what our elections are about now, actually. I mean, that, like, that's basically like Ted Cruz's entire platform is. And Texas Republicans right. like run on. We're, you know, you're, we're not going to allow your grandmother to be shadow banned. Or like, oh, another example. I, you know, I've reported um, accounts that are like impersonating me before. I don't oh, know if right. that ever happened right. to you, right? I've, I've reported those and they take them down. It's not illegal to do that. And I put another that. one right back up. <laughs> right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. Yeah, that was Ryan doing yeah. that. Uh, that's another thing that's not illegal under the First Amendment that I nevertheless impersonating think someone else. Yeah. 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 Right, right. That makes sense. So some some moderation, yeah. good, but the the platforms go way too far, I think. Well, because those aren't about ideas, right? Impersonating someone right. and doxing someone isn't about discussion right. of ideas. So maybe the platform, rather than saying, okay, we're a free speech platform, it should be we are free for discussion. We're an open discussion yeah. platform. Yeah, and maybe that I would agree be a better that. way to phrase. Uh, I agree with these, that, and if. Know, if Elon Musk were to build something like that, I would be in favor of it. Or maybe just take over Twitter. That'd be fine with me. Tesla social. Tesla social. <laughs> uh, Looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. But, we'll see but, what happens. Well, we'll have more rising after this. Billionaires beware. President Biden is coming for your bucks. The White House unveiled on Monday the so-called billionaire minimum income tax, which would implement a 20 percent minimum tax rate on all American households worth over $100 million. The pending plan would be part of Biden's 2023 budget. This is according to sources familiar with the plan. Joining us now to discuss is Julia Manchester. She's a political reporter for The Hill and Philip Wagman, who's a White House reporter for Real Clear Politics. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So, Julia, what can you tell us about how how this would extract revenue from uh, billionaires or 100 millionaires in in ways that are not already included in the tax code? Right. So we know that this would target probably the 700 richest households or 700 richest billionaires in the country. And we know that sometimes uh, investments in stock and such allow these billionaires to potentially skirt taxes so they don't pay as many taxes, per se, as um, those in lower income taxes. Now, this is something that hasn't been done before. It's very much uh, something that I would say a lot of progressives and Democrats are on board with. But one question I have have about this going forward is whether Joe Manchin and uh, Kristen Cinema end up supporting this. We know that they've been uh, holdouts on other economic uh, agenda like items like the Build Back Better uh, uh, program, for, for example. Um, so we, we'll have to see how this uh, definitely plays with that more moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. Uh, you know, what do you think, uh, Philip? I could easily see at least cinema, well, probably both of them, maybe for different reasons, you know, not wanting, they, they seem like they don't want to do anything too drastic. They don't want the Democratic Party to do anything too drastic. So uh, the, I, you could certainly imagine this being dead on arrival. But it sounds good, right? Well, so not to me, got but to, you, <laughs> maybe, maybe to the you, average Democrat. It sounds good to the, uh, the Democratic base for the reasons that Julia just uh, mentioned. And I think the White House knows that they don't always have a lot of luck uh, in Congress, and maybe this is a uh, maybe this is a proposal that is dead on the down dead on arrival. Maybe they actually don't have the votes, uh, but in the meantime, they will be able to argue uh, at a moment when they're already saying that some of the inflation that we're seeing is because of, of uh, different corporate corporations that are profiteering. They'll be able to say, "Well, look, we're ready to get really tough on these billionaires. We're going to really stick it to them." Um, the idea, uh, as far as as I know it, is. 
you know, if there is someone who is making $100 million um, and they are paying uh, anything less than 20%, that they will be sort of topped off at 20%. So if they're make, if they're paying 18 in taxes, uh, then that will become uh, 20%, that it, it'll be, you know, just making up that difference. But look, what do we know about really rich people? Well, really rich people are able to hire really smart accountants and they're able to hire really, you know, smart people to, to uh, manage their stock portfolios. So I'm not certain if this is going to be a provision uh, that is actually going to raise a lot of revenue or if this is going to be a provision uh, that is going to make certain that a lot of wealthy people around the, the country um, suddenly make $99 million uh, rather than the $100 million that would incur a new tax. But you know whether or not it is dead on arrival uh, in Congress, I think it's something we are certainly going to see the White House message on. Yeah, and, and the big problem for the policy comes in in the definition of income because you have so many billionaires who claim that they exactly. have no income at all. They what basically they take their stock and they they give their stock as collateral to a bank and then they and then they take what they call a loan uh, from the bank and then they use the loan to live off. And they're like, well, I had no income. I'm you know, and, and that's why you had uh, Bezos even got like a child tax credit a couple times. Because he's like he, he he gamed it that badly, so I think you could write it in a way that says, okay, that's that's a that's a game, like that count, that's income. We are now defining that as income. Whether or not we can get there, I think, like you said, is is an open question, or the question might even be shut. But Julia, so what do we do about this question where you have a policy that is supported by an overwhelming majority of the country, and you even have you know most policymakers say. The inequality that we have is causing you know, structural rot in our system. But our system itself says, well, too bad. You can't do anything about that. Well, I think it goes back to what, like what you said, defining income. You know, what's a good way to target these individuals who are making um, you know, huge amounts of money? I think, and you know, what's a good way to you know, stop that loop, stop those loopholes that their accountants or their financial advisors are finding a way around that. And I think that's probably some of the criticism that this is going to get. You know, how are you going to implement this? Is this going to be something in name only or will this be something implemented in practice? So I think it all has to do with the definition, with who these people are, how much money they're making, um, you know, and what, what what is income. And I think that's going to be a difficult hurdle because I think, like I said, critics are going to ask these questions. Yeah. Philip, does the kind of, you know, standard Republican line that, that used to to, to, I guess, emerge in cases like this, does it still matter? I, you know, we're living in a different political uh, world than, you know, than, than the Reagan times. So does, mm -hmm. does the standard conservative, like, oh, big government, you know, we shouldn't demonize people who are, you know, making the economy work, does that kind of thing still persuade people or is still a, a defense or an, an offense, a form of offense uh, conservatives go to against something like this? Well, this isn't the Chamber of Commerce's Republican Party anymore. Right. Um, I think, as you alluded to in your question, I mean, there is a, a you know, a upshot of more populist folks uh, on the right who might be fine with increasing uh, taxes, who really aren't uh, that sympathetic to some of these massive corporations. And I think that if you were to dig a little deeper, what you would see is that a lot of these folks who are more populist, who are more nationalist and on the right, uh, they would say, you know, we, we don't mind um, fleecing a corporation or fleecing a rich guy if that person's uh, devotion isn't to, you know, the country, if instead their devotion is to the, the stockholder. But, um, you know, that's sort of this, this pie in the sky conversation that doesn't have to do have, doesn't have anything to do with details. I mean, the, the last position that Republicans had on taxes was the, the Trump tax cuts, right? And I don't think that you have seen either the left or the right have a serious conversation um, about sort of first principles, about that question of what is going to count as income? What are we going to do to seriously make certain uh, that people are paying their fair share, either on the left or the right? Because Republicans' first instinct is, all right, well, you know, can we uh, can we refurbish something that looked like Reagan and uh, sell it uh, as new? And Democrats, their their first instinct seems to be, well, let's just um, you know, let's float something that makes it sound like we're going to be really tough 
on on the wealthy. And you know, as we've discussed just in the, these last few minutes, unless you're actually willing to look at the tax code and look at all of the the realities as such, um, you know, people are going to use that tax code to their own advantage. And sometimes it can lead to ridiculous uh, things like billionaires using, um, you know, child tax credits or, you know, like billionaires using uh, 401k accounts, right? Um, so, you know, surprise, surprise, uh, you, know, you, you would need serious policymakers in Congress uh, instead of people who like to sound off on Twitter. And I'm not certain uh, which we have more of at the moment. And, and Phil, I'm curious for your take on those on those tax cuts, the Trump, the Trump tax cuts, because I often go back to those when I think about how serious the, the new Republican Party is about populism. You know, you get run on populism, run against the elites, and then your biggest signature piece of legislation is a massive, you know, multi-trillion dollar giveaway to the very rich. Was that the dying scream of the Paul Ryan wing of the party? Or was that actually something that you're going to continue to see in this new Republican Party talk a big game when it comes to populism during elections, but then when you get into office, behave just like the last Republican Party. It was certainly a feature of Donald Trump's presidency, despite a lot of his rhetoric that was, you know, much farther to the right, the way that he governed or the way that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan sort of forced him to govern when it came to actually uh, the legislation that was signed into law was a, sort of a, a conventional Republican presidency, right? Um, you know, his, his big thing, his big legislative achievement was that tax cut. Um, I think that, you know, the question of where the right will be uh, is a difficult one. Uh, I don't believe that, you know, rank and file Republicans feel like they got a lot of credit uh, for that tax cut. You know, certainly um, there might be some merited frustration because uh, for a long time, um, you know, th there were many in the media who falsely said that, you know, the middle class did not receive, you know, a tax cut, which simply, you know, wasn't true. Whether or not they received as, as much of a benefit as some of the, the more wealthy, um, that's that's certainly a, an open, uh, open topic. But um, yeah, you know, if, if Republicans don't sort of come up with some vision if they don't actually have these interesting arguments now um, eventually you know they'll get into power they won't know what they're going to do and then they'll just uh, revert back to the last playbook and they'll say hey yeah things were great during the Reagan administration when we cut taxes let's try and do that again indeed well Julia Philip thank you so much for joining us thank you and we'll be back with more rising right after this The millennial generation, that's my generation, has no aspirations to buy real estate. At least that's what Gary Berman says. He's CEO of Toronto's prominent residential corporation, Tricron Residential. This multi-billion dollar company has become one of the largest owners of single-family homes in the United States. With inflation on the rise across the country, Berman says more people, particularly millennials, are renting. According to CBS News, Berman said, quote, millennials aren't living in their parents' basement anymore or shacking up with roommates. They want a place of their own, and we didn't build any housing for them in the last decade because we're still so traumatized by the last housing crisis, end quote. Berman also said millennials care more about, quote, lifestyle than necessarily the desire to buy a home. Let's take a look. I think if you asked a lot of millennials, and that tends to be our primary resident, um, they would probably tell you that they don't necessarily desire to own a home or to mm -hmm. own a car. They've grown up in the sharing economy, and for what's important to them is lifestyle, right? And so if they can move into this, what we call a turnkey or hotel-ready home, and have a low-maintenance lifestyle, that's very compelling for them. Alancia Johnson joins us now to weigh in. She's a Democratic strategist and chief impact officer at 1063 West Broad. Welcome, Alancia. Thank you. Good to be here. So it reminds me of that, that line that people quote from the Great Reset uh, thing. You'll own nothing and you'll love it. Uh, is, is, there, is there anything to this? Is he, is he right that uh, millennials, you know, they're like, we'll, we'll just take a pass on this whole American dream home ownership thing? I don't know if you caught my face before I came on, but I was very um, concerned about his comments. They came across very patronizing. I am an older millennial who does not own, and that's not because I don't want to, but he his reasoning for millennials not owning is actually wrong. Part of the reason that a lot of millennials don't own is because we are crushing with 
student loan debt and we need to cancel student loan debt. Um, we have, you know, our salaries are not matching these rent and mortgage prices. We are unable to save in the way that our parents' generations were. And so I don't believe it's necessarily just because millennials don't want to own a home. It's because we literally cannot. It is hard for someone to save to buy a home when more than 50% of your income tends to go to renting. And so I would uh, have a different, take a different approach than the CEO, but it's obvious as he is not even a, you know, he owns a company um, from Canada and unfortunately is buying up homes in the United States, actually adding to the problem, not helping solve the problems for millennials. So I found his assessment very patronizing and missing the mark completely. I mean, I think I disagree. I, I actually agreed <laughs> substantially with the analysis. I think it describes some, not all millennials, I think it describes some millennials who, who, who do, uh, who, for whom experience does matter, who, who want uh, or want to live in a place that is difficult to afford, like New York or L.A. or Washington, D.C., uh, because they want a, you know, a professional social community. And if you live, if you're going to choose to live in those places, yes, it is difficult to afford a home. But home ownership is affordable, even for millennials, if they're willing to look outside the 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 you know core uh big city liberal elite lifestyle it is affordable uh don't you think well, I wouldn't necessarily call it a liberal elite lifestyle. I've lived in these major cities that you've talked about, and there's people from different ideologies. The reality is, to your point, yes, there are homes that are affordable in smaller towns, such as a, or cities like a Durham or a Charlotte or some of those smaller cities, but the jobs with the salaries that are comparable to the ones in the Washington DCs and San Francisco's are also not there. And so it's very compounded, and I, and I will say that Yes, millennials are in their 30s, maybe early 40s, and not necessarily having a large family. But eventually the conversation becomes, what am I going to do if I get married? I have children. I want more land. I also want to build wealth. If we think about it, millennials are diverse. And unfortunately for a lot of millennials of color, that is one way for us to actually achieve wealth. And so it's a very compounded analysis. And yes, I lived in a big city, as I've mentioned, and to your point of people wanting to be transient, wanting to live in New York, wanting to live in a Chicago, absolutely. But at a certain point, the lifestyle changes and we're having this conversation of what are the big investments going to be in order to build wealth and generate wealth, create a family and have more space. And uh, among your your social set, what are you what are you finding as people transition kind of out of their twenties? Because like, sure, you could look at any generation that's when they move to a major city, they're gonna they're gonna rent, they're gonna shack up with roommates. The ones who have parents who live in the city are gonna maybe you know live in their basement. Like that that's very normal. But then as they you know put some money together, and as they then move into creating a family and you know moving on to the next phase of their life, then they buy something and they kind of settle down, quote unquote, that's the part that doesn't exist for millennials. And so how are you, how is the, how is the, how are you seeing the transition play out among your circle? Well, I think with the pandemic, um, it has actually exacerbated this conversation and people are thinking, okay, where can I, especially with the ability to work from home, where can I set up somewhere and actually build a lifestyle for several years. I don't want this fast paced lifestyle anymore. I kind of want to take root somewhere and build a community. Millennials love a community and that looks differently, whether it's with your family, with your friends, with your social circle, your work network, whatever it may be. And so I'm in a lot of conversation of people in their mid to late thirties trying to figure out where can we afford the quality of life that we love with great restaurants, with uh, very walkable towns, and I can also have space and I can build wealth by building a home. And so this conversation is shifting and it's not just this turning over, going from apartment to apartment, city to city. Folks wanna take root somewhere and I think the pandemic has really pushed that conversation forward. Well, according to Berman, the company's revenue increased by 67% last year, and 60 Minutes journalist Leslie Stahl says Tricon, which currently has about 30,000 rental homes across the U.S., is trying to buy 800 houses a month. People all over the United States and Canada are angry about those comments and his suggestion that, quote, home ownership isn't something millennials desire, end quote. I mean, they can be mad about it. I, I, again, I think some millennials do value the experience 
um, over like narrow, like you have to own a home. Owning a home can be a hassle too. Like it can be, it can be a, something you just sink money into. They have to having to repair everything, having to worry about everything. Um, but maybe maybe that's just my my view. I don't know. Maybe I'm a, I'm I'm I fall into the category of millennials who are not overly obsessed with with uh, with home ownership. Well, you know, I mean, to that point, there, there's there's nuance here. A lot of things can be true at the same time. Home ownership does come with a whole lot of responsibility. And so as we're having this conversation about home ownership and it's shifting for millennials, we should just talk about how are millennials building wealth in other ways, right? The conversation of home ownership has always been around building generational wealth. And so what are the other ways in which millennials are making investments when you have landlords mm -hmm. like that's hoarding rental properties and raising prices? I mean, I believe this article was talking about how rental prices have gone up almost 30%, which is just straight greedy. We are still in a pandemic and we are still in economic recovery. And so if we're going to have this conversation about the shifting ideology around home ownership, let's also have this conversation about other ways in which millennials are trying to invest and build wealth. And that well, might not be ownership. Let's have a conversation about building more houses. I mean, that's the problem. There's an artificial constraint on the supply of housing because it's so difficult to build and develop anywhere. And, and we're, we're not building to, to to, so, so that's a there. That's a check on home ownership that yes, I think is a problem, and that I'm in favor of fixing. And ban this Canadian from buying them all up. But yes. build, build more. Ban private equity from buying them. Yeah. Problem won't be solved, but you'll get a lot of the way there, right? I agree. I, I do not think a Canadian should be coming in the United States when we have a housing issue that we need to resolve on our own. And he's buying all of them up as well. I, I yeah. absolutely agree with you on that point. Yeah, thumbs down on that. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And we will have more Rising right after this. The Hill's Hannah Trudeau recently explained why some left-wing candidates are ditching the progressive label on the campaign trail. Though they're still running on progressive principles like single-payer health care and environmental reform, candidates like Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman prefer the word populist. Early polling shows Fetterman's lead polls among Democratic voters. His communications director told The Hill, quote, John is running on a set of core beliefs that, frankly, we don't consider right or left. Democrat or Republican, they're just the truth. Our colleague Hannah Trudeau joins us now to discuss further. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. Yeah, and so no matter what faction of the Republican Party you're in, you don't really see them distancing themselves from the word conservative. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you think is underneath the rejection by some of the, of the term progressive. And you, had, you hinted at the end of your piece that for at least some, some of the candidates, it had to do with the culture wars, that they wanted, to, they wanted to be identified with some of the kind of populist economic values that the Democratic Party has been known for over the years, but we're nervous about getting caught up in the culture war aspect of progressivism. And I'm curious if you think that that was just that one candidate, or is that a, a broader phenomenon that you're, that you're seeing? Yeah, that's definitely a broader phenomenon. I think it's three things. Um, when, when candidates have, that I've talked to have started distancing themselves from this label, it's basically because First, I think, and, and, and the most common reason that I picked up on is because they view it as um, populist versus progressive is something that more closely matches the tone on the ground um, in, in those sort of uh, rural areas, particularly in certain states in Pennsylvania, um, in North Carolina, even in Missouri. And so when they when they think of progressive, they think oftentimes DC um, policy papers, think tanks, and the word has been in, in some of these candidates' mind has been kind of co-opted um, in that way. And so when they think back, obviously to the word populism, that has some of those similar left-wing principles, like like you mentioned, but. Uh, but it, it, it's broader. Obviously, it cuts both ways. You don't have to be a Democrat or a left-wing um, uh, progressive necessarily to be a populist. Obviously, Trump calls himself a populist. So does so does you know Bernie Sanders at times. And so there's there's this rejection of the the DC tie to the word progressive. I think back to the 2020 campaign, a lot of these candidates um, who were not necessarily super progressive were um, kind of out competing with each other to adopt the latest uh, policy proposal that was you know floating around on the left, and they got you know put in this quote unquote progressive uh, bucket. And so there's there's that. And then like you mentioned, the other part of it, which is definitely um, a sizable 
portion of why what some candidates are doing this is because there is a culture, you know, quote unquote culture war aspect to it that candidates think, you know, again, these more DC, quote unquote, liberal progressives, you know, that's another term that a lot of folks on the left don't like. Uh, but the, the, there's a there's a thought among some that they that they really spend too much time focusing on things that aren't necessarily resonating on the ground, and and it's not that they're they don't think that they're important, um, but they think that they could alienate voters. And quite frankly, they're they're working with a different base. Um, they're working with swing voters. They're working with um, first time voters or infrequent voters, and so there's they're trying to hit a much wider swath. And they and they're a little bit cautious about some of that culture war stuff. Yeah, and it, it seems to me progressive is the term that is most tied to the unpopular uh, kind of democratic positions on culture war issues. I, I think about even my own use of the word. Uh, you know, I've, I've stopped really referring to that stuff, you know, if we're talking about like defund the police or, you know, trans athletes or something like that, the unpopular positions. I, I wouldn't necessarily, I've stopped saying liberal because liberal is a very fraught word that means a lot of different things. You know, in some sense, like classical liberal means something like totally at odds with what people you, you uh, mean by the word liberal. And then, but then to say it's left or the left, well, there's a lot of people on the left. I mean, I've learned from conversations <laughs> with you and people on the show who are, you know, economic class first leftists who really are not invested in these culture questions. So actually progressive to me became, it's the term I use most frequently. It's the one to fit with this kind of stuff. So I guess I'm not surprised to see uh, if, if I'm also using it that way you know, to refer to these things that are unpopular, then I think it would make sense that some of these savvier candidates would, would settle on any other term to describe their thinking. Yeah. So, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. No, go, and oh, go ahead. and I, I even think back, you know, one one candidate, um, Erica Smith in North Carolina, she prefers the term New Deal Democrat, which is um, another term that's a little bit under the radar. You don't hear it so much in the mainstream um, consciousness, but she refers to it specifically to, to reach rural voters. And that's, you know, if you think back to, to again, to 2016, 2020, Bernie Sanders ran a campaign that you could argue was, quote, you know, a New Deal um, platform or New Deal Democrat. Of course, he ran as a democratic socialist. And we're seeing um, a little bit of a distancing from that specific term, democratic socialist. Um, of course, some some candidates do prefer to still be called that. Um, so this isn't a uniform thing. But I, I find it interesting that, you know, there's it, it, basically candidates are looking for more individualized ways to identify themselves instead of just, you know, what Washington, I think of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, for example. I mean, there's a lot of supporters of the what the CPC is doing, but there's also a lot of detractors and there's been a lot of bad press around, you know, build back better and, and whose fault it was. And um, obviously progressives in, in that caucus would argue that it wasn't um, their fault that the legislation uh, failed. But nonetheless, that might not be translating out in certain swing states. And I think these candidates are conscious of, you know, that aspect of it as well. And another candidate you highlight in your reporting is uh, Lucas Kuntz, who's a Democratic Senate candidate in Missouri. Kuntz has identified as a populist and part of a people-powered movement. And he's, like you said, he hasn't taken on the progressive uh, label, just like Fetterman. Kuntz has been neck and neck with his GOP opponent, former governor of Missouri, Eric Greitens. According to recent polls, though, Greitens may not be the one to come out of that primary. Kuntz and Fetterman are both competing in battlegrounds that could determine you know, which party controls the Senate. And I, I wonder if the rejection of the progressive label from somebody like Coons is kind of a bank shot way of just trying to reject the Democratic label in Missouri. I think, I don't know if he would say this out loud and, or if he even agrees with it, but it feels like in a state like Missouri that's trending so Republican, a populist left-wing candidate would be better off just calling themselves an independent at this point than Democrat. There's mm -hmm. very little upside to that label and only downside is, is do, you, do you think there's some relationship between resistance to the term progressive and just the collapse of the Democratic brand in rural America? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I, I, I don't like you said, I don't know if he would necessarily say that um, himself, but but certainly I mean, look at Missouri is, is a perfect example. There's a rejection of the Democratic Party. Um, there's there was nearly a rejection of the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania with Biden, who is. Um, from the state. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think, you know, Democrats since 20, maybe 14, 15, uh, were very, very slow to the to, to sort of pick up the 
um, rural voter memo that that they really needed to get it together on, on that front. And um, Sanders' campaign, you know, made some inroads there and and built the foundation for that. But it's 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 not something I even hear uh, many folks talking about in in terms of you know the midterms or 2024. And quite frankly, a lot of this groundwork for 2024 would have had to be laid, you know, by the party writ large, the Democratic Party. Um, many years ago, I think. So I think they're going to continue to struggle. It's it's something that I hear in um, fringe conversations. Obviously, it's more popular to talk about that on the left, um, but it's it's not something that the Democratic Party um, as such is sort of focusing on right now. And I think that that's, that's yeah, like you said, that's the reason why there's, there's a, a sort of desire to go by something that doesn't have that term in it. Well, and, and do you think it could be from a strategic perspective that makes sense? Because, you know, if you want to call yourself you're calling yourself a populist, you might rope in some Trump people, some non-Democrats who are like, oh, I like populism. I'm a populist. Uh, That's what Trump said he is. So you're going to get those people, but you're not going to lose, you know, uh, your actual progressives who are like very, you know, highly informed voters, know exactly who the candidates and the parties are. And they're, you know, they're going to vote. They know this person is actually a Democrat and has, you know, has progressive views on, on many issues. So they're, they're, you're not you're not alienating them because they're they're connected enough to the process to know this is going to be their person anyway. Whereas you, but you could you know rope in some le- some voters who are paying less attention. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think you know that speaks to both Erica Smith in North Carolina, who is specifically um, and quite transparently targeting Trump voters, um, and and Fetterman and in Pennsylvania, and you know he's he's basically saying I talked to his his folks for a couple of recent pieces, and you know their their whole thought process is we don't want to be I mean if if there's going to be a, a label yes call him a populist, but um, more broadly than that he does not want to be labeled um, as anything related to the Democratic Party. So uh, yes, that, that, to, to your point about you know the, the ties to, to populism and the fact that some Trump voters like that or they know it they're familiar with it, I think that that is really um, a powerful messaging. For them, and I think that it's something to keep an eye on to see if more candidates uh, sort of take up that mantle. Because when it was used uh, in relation to Trump, obviously by the Democratic Party, it was seen as a negative thing, um, and it was seen as a negative thing among some of the in the Democratic Party. But Bernie, you know, used it or people used it about him. Uh, but I think that might be changing a little, and and you know, we haven't seen a backlash against Fetterman's campaign the way that some might have expected to, I think, that, that which is interesting to me. So if, if, if he ends up winning over um, Connor Lamb, who is his closest competitor, I think that that will be an interesting point for, for the party, you know, strategists and, and elected officials who are even more, a little bit more moderate to say, okay, this might be a, a way to sort of message these kind of candidates in these places. And um, the fact that they haven't totally turned their back on him and he's obviously leading is, is a, a little bit of a sign of that, I think. We'll be watching. And th- thanks for your reporting, Hannah. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. The onslaught of cancellation directed towards left-leaning media keeps piling up. During an appearance on Code Pink, journalist and activist Abby Martin called for a critical analysis of the mainstream media. Really, this Ukraine war hysteria and war drive really makes you realize that the media is just absolutely complicit in telling people what they should care about and and really prioritizing conflicts over others. And as Chris Hedges so aptly says, what victims are worthy and which are unworthy. It's really incredible that uh, the media can can figure out ways to try to engage in war without going fully nuclear. Yet Abby Martin here, who has been a staunch anti-war voice, is the one that ends up getting canceled. Abby, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us what happened. Uh, Recently, you had a bunch of videos taken off of YouTube, completely removed, like 600-something videos. What is exactly going on? Yeah, I mean, this was the culmination of this years-long kind of censorship campaign that ended up with the establishment really uh, completely purging all Russian-affiliated media content. And that includes just archives uh you know huge swaths of anti-imperialist content from the likes of myself chris hedges and lee camp these were 500 plus episodes of my old show breaking the set that ended in 2014. this did not violate the terms of service of youtube's content management um this was simply political this was tech giants acting on behalf of the u.s government to tow 
a certain narrative to bolster this foreign policy consensus. And Abby, for people who aren't familiar with with RT, can you can you lay out like what what the network was and what what the relationship is with the Russian government? Because I think some people have the impression that it's just kind of a a kind of state run propaganda outfit. But there's it's a little more complicated than that. It is. I mean, look, I look at the the purview of, of all media kind of the same way. Everyone has questionable funding and it's a matter of us as critical thinkers um, who are pushing media literacy to actually navigate all of these biases, advertising and sponsorship of all corporate media and state media. Russia Today is funded by the Russian government. It's in the name Russia Today. It's very obvious um, and it's up front, right? So I think that you know that you're not gonna necessarily get the truth about Russia watching Russia Today, but it offered a platform for anti-war dissidents. And this is a really fascinating aspect of the story that's being left out with all of these churned out formulaic pieces that just kind of give this Kremlin top-down propaganda machine, you know, the, this kind of legacy painting without actually ana- analyzing why RT existed. Why was it popular? It filled a gaping void in the corporate media that had failed uh, to talk about third parties, failed to talk about anti-capitalist issues, and failed to uplift those voices on the margins, these fringe voices from across the political spectrum. And that's exactly what RT did. I don't think that we have to be in denial about why we were hired, um, but I think that it's really instructive when you look at actually what the U.S. government said itself in its intelligence report that was supposed to be this end-all, be-all indictment of Russian propaganda. It wasn't about propaganda. It was about uplifting these issues that the U.S. corporate media did not want covered. Right. And I think that's so interesting. What do you make of this you know, somewhat new reality where the, the calls for censorship or for aggressive content moderation on various platforms is coming not just, not just from the government, not just from you know, corporate interests or some kind of like narrow economic interest, but, but also from you know, mainstream me- media, from, from media outlets that are, that are progressive in some sense on some issues, uh, saying that no, people should, you know, this information is disinformation or we disagree with it. It, it, should not be, it should not be available for people to decide for themselves at all. I feel like this is the new ethos of the mainstream media, that it, 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 this, these questions cannot be left to the people. It is totally for the gatekeepers to decide. Side. Exactly. I mean, we have tech overlords basically curating our reality and tasking themselves with determining what is and what is not truth. And that's a very scary thing because I believe in critical thinking. So I want all perspectives. I want to be able to navigate everything and decide for myself what is reality, what is truth, and not have Silicon Valley overlords who are acquiescing to U.S. foreign policy goals, determining that reality for me. And it's very scary because, as you mentioned, these are for-profit corporations, right? And I hear this time and again, oh, well, it's a corporation, right? If you don't like it, get off their service. Well, not exactly, because when you are overriding your main priority as a corporation of profit maximization and actually curtailing profiting, by acquiescing and and towing the line of the U.S. government and basically changing the algorithms to purge content, right? This content was making them millions of dollars in advertising and sponsorships, Mm -hmm. but they decided to actually basically uh, tow propaganda. I I mean, this is the main function is censorship and propaganda. Tech monopolies are an arm of the U.S. government. And I think that's been crystal clear. In the wake of the DNI report, we saw the algorithms change. There was no law in place mandating these companies to do that. They just decided to work with the government because these CEOs uh, basically want to work with the class interests of the ruling elite in the U.S. And that means deeming every U.S. adversary sinister, whether it's slapping that sinister state media propaganda label on the network or essentially purging them altogether. But you don't see the same state media label on Voice of America, on BBC, on the Kiv Independent, this new network that's popped up in everyone's Twitter feeds that also was in part funded by the U.S. government. So it's just staggering levels of hypocrisy. And I think this is infantilizing. This is treating us like children and telling us that we we need to basically give up our power to these CEOs to determine all these things for us. And these are the same people who've been on a crusade against fake news for the past several years. 
right? Where you have New York Times now saying, oh, no, 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 we can parrot fake news as long as it boosts the Ukrainian war morale. I mean, it's really, really a topsy-turvy kind of Alice in Wonderland world that we're living in. So for the people that are really skeptical of this and they criticize, and I'm sure you've had numerous people come after you calling you a Putin puppet, Russian propagandist, when you were with RT and anyone that's working for these sort of Russian-funded outlets, were you given directives? Were you told that you must say X, Y, Z thing and promote our side of the war? I mean, what, what were you told? I wasn't told anything. There's a cartoonish depiction of what RT is as this top-down Kremlin propaganda network that were around this round table and Putin's directing like some Orwellian 1984, like, you must say this every day. It's like, dude, we were, it was the most hands-off like news experience ever. It was a newsroom full of extremely eager, honest journalists who wanted to dig into the investigative stories that were not capable on these other platforms. I think you guys know very well. I mean, it's very tough to get a job in this industry. Journalism jobs are diminishing at a rapid pace. And RT offered so many journalists the ability to really dive into things that were completely forbidden. These viewpoints are completely forbidden. I had no editorial control whatsoever. I not only was able to do whatever I wanted on my daily opinion show, um, covering everything from Palestine, U.S. war crimes to Russia itself. I criticized Russia several times and I criticized the network's coverage of the Crimea incursion. And it wasn't just some token dissident statement to legitimize RT's editorial freedom. I actually talked about Ukraine for several months after that. And I really proved that you can pave editorial freedom even at this so-called propaganda network. And I think that's really a strong indictment of every other journalist at corporate media. Why is it that they simply toe the line? Are they true believers in US empire and American exceptionalism? It's quite ridiculous, just the levels of hypocrisy to pinpoint RT as some sort of grotesque aberration, right? This exam- this experiment of Russian propaganda. No, it filled a void, it uplifted voices and it covered issues that exist. These grievances exist. And they are not being seen. 60% of Americans are surviving paycheck to paycheck. That's not shown on U.S. corporate media. They want to sanitize our reality because they just don't want to talk about it. They don't want accountability for the political failures in this country. So they have to point to something like this Russian propaganda network um, and basically grossly inflate its numbers and its influence. And it's outrageous. Censorship is never the answer. And we're on a very slippery slope here because as Russia constricts its independent media, shuts down Twitter, Facebook, we're basically doing the same, but in an insidious fashion because people think that we're the freest country in the world. We have free press. No, they are insidiously controlling everything that we see. And we just don't know it. And I feel like the the relationship between the kind of American media and RT evolved over the last couple of decades and was sort of a proxy for the way in which the Russian and U.S. relationships evolved. Like in the 90s and 2000s, RT was understood to be obviously a state-funded you know, Russian uh, operation, uh, but it was, it was considered somewhat more respectable among the media class. And a lot of people would move in and out as, you know, producers or bookers, you know, from RT to other places that when I was at HuffPost, we hired several people, you know, who had gone in and out of uh, RT at one point in their career. And that, and that was sort of a normal thing that you did in, in the U.S. In the, up, you know, up through the, say, 2000s, early 2010s. But then, then you started to see a pivot as, as the relationship got frostier between the U.S. and Russia. And Russia today then became kind of verboten. Uh, to, to, to discuss or to, to appear on. Did you notice that going on? On the on the inside, did you see it? Did you see it changing while you were there? And did yeah, did RT change, or was it the relationship change, or or maybe as the relationship changed, RT changed as well? I don't know. I think that you hit it on the head. I think that as the U.S. relationship with Russia changed and shifted, then you saw uh, basically the reflection and portrayal of RT dramatically shift. Very similar to Al Jazeera. Look at how Al Jazeera was painted in the post 9-11 world. It was literally painted as like a terrorist network, 
the yeah, CIA spent like millions of dollars trying to decode what they thought were terrorist messages in like the lower third of the cryon of Al Jazeera. I mean, it's really embarrassing levels of like imperial hubris and like baby empire baby brain. I mean, really. So <laughs> over the course of, of the last several decades, yeah, RT, um, amazing journalists came out of RT. But I think as the Syria war uh, took on a different role where Russia kind of, you know, basically played an interesting role to combat U.S. Uh, forces there um, with the chemical weapons scare. After that, um, the Crimea incursion. And so it was really all over um, at that point where Russia basically um, stood up to the U.S., for better or worse. And that's when the relationship changed and it became very, very hostile. And, you know, back in the 90s, the U.S. had very friendly relations with with uh, Yeltsin and was involved in, you know, a lot of oligarchs were involved in looting the post-Soviet economy. And they Putin just ended up not being the puppet that the U.S. hoped for. And so it became increasingly hostile and tense. And then you saw RT becoming more and more, you know, cartoonishly depicted. And now it's just completely discredited. You know, after the Crimea incursion, you saw this entire shift where basically everything was blamed on Russian propaganda. I mean, it, it's really insulting to our intelligence, actually, to take stock of how we got someone like Donald Trump and actually not actually account for the conditions in this country that made someone like Donald Trump and instead just point to this obscure Russian news network and be like, no, no, no. That's why we have Donald Trump. I mean, it's totally absurd. <laughs> like in the DNI report, it talked about like we covered fracking, third party candidates. These, this is not propaganda. These are issues that should be covered by the corporate media. So why aren't they? Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Well, Abby, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for covering this, guys. Appreciate it. We'll be back with more Rising right after this.